Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 104 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success strategies for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Now, before we get into the main part of the show, I wanted to let you know about my online PR course and group coaching program, Vegans in the Limelight. It's ideal for small business owners, including authors, artists and creatives on a budget who understand the value of getting yourself or your vegan brand featured regularly in the media, but can't afford to spend thousands of dollars or pounds a month to hire a publicist or PR firm. With Vegans in the Limelight, you get access to online video training that takes you through every step of how to get media coverage that can help you generate more leads and sales, as well as grow your email list and social media following. So we cover how PR and social media work in tandem, how to research and target the media without spending a cent, how to find the stories in your vegan brand on a regular basis, How to approach journalists the right way with ideas and stories. That's a really important one. How and when to write a media release. How to create an online media room for your website without spending heaps of time or money. How to respond to journalists' call-outs or queries, which is the easiest and quickest way to get media coverage and free publicity content marketing and PR, so how to create your own shareworthy stuff and leverage it to the max, writing and content creation tips for opinion pieces, listicles, features and columns, speaking gigs and PR, so how to leverage events to gain media coverage, and interview tips for print, online, radio and TV. Now, as well as the video training, which you go through at your own pace over 12 months, the program also includes a full 12 months of group coaching, including a monthly live Q&A call. You can also post your questions throughout the year on the learning platform, and you can post your pitches and media releases and get feedback from me before you send them to journalists. So you've basically got me holding your hand, helping you to do your own PR for a full year. It's a great value program. It's way more affordable than similar courses. And it's the only one that's specifically aimed at vegan and plant-based business owners, entrepreneurs, authors, coaches, and creators. Current students have already got media coverage in mainstream and specialist newspapers, magazines, radio and TV shows, as well as blogs and podcasts. So if you'd like to get your vegan brand or yourself featured in the media, but don't have the budget to hire a publicist or PR agency, then I highly recommend you check out this program. You get full and immediate access to the materials as soon as you enroll. You can find out all the details by going to veganbusinessmedia.com and clicking on the link for the program Vegans in the Limelight. And there's also a link on the show notes page. And if you have any questions about the program, including whether it's right for you, feel free to email me at katrina at veganbusinessmedia.com. Now for the main part of the show. In this episode, I interviewed Dylan Kendall, a designer of fun, affordable, functional and responsibly manufactured products for the home in Los Angeles. Dylan founded her first enterprise, Hollywood Arts, as a response to the challenge of ending youth homelessness. Hollywood Arts was the only educational facility in the nation to use arts and music to help homeless young people become self-sufficient. It quickly grew to serve hundreds of young people and earned Dylan the recognition of the Ashoka Foundation for her innovative approach to ending youth homelessness at the national level. Her second company, Dylan Kendall Home, launched with a bowl on feet. The company now sells internationally and is working on a program of eco-friendly products for children based on new-to-market green materials. 
It hasn't all been plain sailing though, and Dylan uses her experience of getting through some particularly difficult times to help other entrepreneurs succeed via her social impact coaching services. In this interview, Dylan talks about how she started her home products company while working for an agency for foster children, what she did that resulted in her first product, a bowl with feet, going viral, how she handled this fast success and the challenges that came with it, including missing deadlines for fulfilling orders, the different funding models she used, including five crowdfunding campaigns, three SBA loans, purchase order financing, and giving away a majority of her company ownership, and her thoughts on these, how her plans to launch a new plant-based plastic were cut off at the knees by a poor investment and a few bad containers, and how she came back from this. The model she's now using to sell her products to China, which has freed up a lot of her time to pursue other projects, and much more. Here's the interview with Dylan Kendall. Hello, Dylan, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you on because you've got such an interesting story of sort of ups and downs in your business. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that a little bit. But I always kick off the show with asking people about their why, asking entrepreneurs why they do what they do. So what are your drivers for running your business? What's your why? I think there are two reasons. I think number one, if you I didn't really know what an entrepreneur was in my mid-30s. I just thought I was a slacker. I hadn't <laughs> and I thought I just I couldn't keep a job and I was terminated from a few and kind of really muddled through this thing called employment. And I was 35 and I met somebody and he said to me, you're an entrepreneur. And this light bulb went off and I became so fascinated with what an entrepreneur was. I read everything I could find online. And this was 12 years ago, so it wasn't even as sort of trending, this concept of being an entrepreneur back then as it is now, but there was still enough to find. And it made me so calm to see that there was actually a label for personality types like mine, that it wasn't a character default, that I had qualities that had just not been sort of organized correctly to make me successful, but they weren't actually deficits. So I realized you know, via this mentor, more about who I was, more about where I would be successful in my life. And that was following an entrepreneurial road in which I initiated what I was doing for my work. And the second would be, I suppose, the direct response to this company, but it's actually, I I went sideways to get to where I am when I was 35 and in the process of discovering that indeed I was an entrepreneur in my core, I had actually started my first company, which was a nonprofit enterprise. So I built in 2005 a school for homeless young adults living on the streets of Hollywood. Wow. And that also, you know, nothing, not only did I not know that entrepreneurialism was actually a real thing, none of my career moves were ever planned. I was working as a consultant and not happy and decided I wanted to go back into doing ceramics, which I had done in my 20s and this big ceramic studio I had put into my flat and thought, that's my happy space. I'm just going to go back and do that and try to make something of it. But I couldn't ignore that I'd been positioned for the past couple of years in this public space and I had this burning desire to be part of the world, to make a difference, to give back. And so I went to a friend of mine who's quite well known at this point. He's the mayor of Los Angeles, but back then he was not. We were friends and he was a councilman. And I said, I'm just going to build my ceramic studio again and I'm going to throw bowls. But I want to open it up one day a week to at-risk kids because I feel like that'll satisfy my need, my itch to give back. And he made a bunch of introductions, and I discovered to local nonprofits who could potentially partner with me, and I discovered that um, there were all these kids living on the streets of Hollywood, and no one was talking about it because they were over the age of 18, technically in the adult welfare system, but woefully unprepared to be treated like adults. And so I thought, okay, cool, I'm going to build a ceramic studio. They'll come. It'll be amazing. I went out and did my field work. I met my customer, these kids. 
and not one of them was remotely interested in ceramics. (laughs) (laughs) It's good that you did the market research. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. That's my big piece of advice. Hopefully the takeaway on the call on the podcast will be do your market research, folks. So I meet all these people who are, like I said, my potential customers for the product I wanted to sell, and not one of them cared. So I was so fascinated and I detected a challenge, and challenges always motivate me. So I asked them what they were interested in. And as one might suspect, most 18-year-olds want to be rock stars, wanted to design fashion, want to be filmmakers. So I heard that I readapted my product to, to satisfy what they wanted to buy, to satisfy them showing up, basically. And I built what became the nation's first and only arts-based educational facility for over the age of 18 kids on the street, homeless kids, oh, wow. foster kids. That's amazing. It was a huge fun, exciting. Um, It met with so much opposition. I can't tell you how many times I tried to fundraise. And I heard, why would I want to give kids, homeless kids, you know, paintbrushes? We should really be giving them food and shelter. And I had to keep pushing back against that. And it got so down and dirty, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs was brought in more times. I could pull out my hair. I can imagine. (laughs) That art making was not in the hierarchy. And I would always counter and say that, understandably food and shelter are key to survival but are we just trying to sustain the problem or are we trying to solve it and my approach will solve it my approach will use arts-based learning in a very mary poppins sort of way to make the medicine taste like honey and i can teach them vegan honey of course course. (laughs) actually you're right at this point i would have to have adopted that metaphor back then i was (laughs) vegetarian not vegan okay Um, to be um poor mary poppins she doesn't really fit into today's day (laughs) brilliant that's wonderful I I love that so how did you get into doing your products based business right so then the transition was let me tell you running a nonprofit with five years on the streets with homeless you burn out and I did and I think anybody who doesn't acknowledge that in the nonprofit space is fooling themselves it's a high burnout field and I felt that way also so Coming out towards the end, I needed to step down to save my own kind of sense of, and to be honest, I thought I want to do like the most possibly fun, ridiculous thing I can think of. And what might that be? Putting feet on bowls, right? It's Mm -hmm. utterly ridiculous. It's the silliest thing you can think of doing. And I didn't at that point consider it a career. I thought I needed to just decompress feet on bowls made people laugh. And I felt like I wanted to move into that space. And I remember telling my you know, some of my board of directors that I was doing this and having lunch with them and the horror, right? <laughs> thinking, what do I do? I respect this woman so much, but what? She wants to do what? Like, that's crazy, right? And thankfully, it worked out well and everybody, we laugh now about it. But at the moment, it was very risky. Here I was walking away from this big agency with a lot of variety and putting feet on bowls. So, I love that. I just think it's, it gives inspiration to people to it really does be able inspire to do you that. to know that there doesn't have to be a plan, but you have to always have your ears open sure. because you don't know where the opportunity is going to be. And mm-hmm. I think, especially for a personality sort like mine, like other entrepreneurs, it's sometimes not a plan. It's sometimes the planning is your worst enemy in a way. Although of course I bring planning into the businesses I build, but when you're kind of figuring out where to put your first foot, first foot forward. So yeah, I put feet on bowls and I'm still working now in the nonprofit space. I'm consulting for a foster care agency. And again, my burnout just bled into every area of the nonprofit space. I just was tired. So I wasn't particularly overjoyed now just consulting and leading this non, this, foster care agency, I found a little small factory. There are very few ceramics factories left in the U.S. I found a little small factory in Long Beach, not far from where I am. And I made like 600 bowls, right, with feet. And I brought them back to my home in my very large station wagon, and they just littered my apartment. And every day I was getting up and going to an office building on Wilshire and speaking on behalf of foster kids, which I do with passion, I believe in it, but not happily. And one day I said, wait, this is nuts. I mean, within a week, I mean, sorry, a few weeks in. So I, without 
realizing that, again, back then, this was eight years ago. It's not, at that point, the internet wasn't quite, people were still looking for content. I just wrote to a bunch of bloggers with a picture of my bowl on feet. And I said, look, I run a foster care agency, but I made this bowl on feet. What do you think, right? I mean, it was as silly as that. <laughs> and that's the other you know, lesson, I think. If you are not comfortable selling what you want to sell, walk away. Right. Yeah. So I wrote to these bloggers. I wrote to 20 of them. Only three got back to me. Thankfully, they were three of the most influential design blogs eight years ago. I'm not even sure if they're all still in business. And the little bull with feet went viral. So the next thing I knew, I had $80,000 worth of purchase orders. I had no idea how to fill that many. They certainly would not be. Wagon. Were they um, didn't were they individual orders like from individuals or were they no. distributors or retailers wanting them? They were. Uh, so it was a combination of all three. It all was three. certainly direct to customer. It was a couple of retailers. One of the biggest ones would have been Uncommon Goods, and then it was one international distributor, actually in Australia, oh. and that was a whole world of oh my god, how do I get footed bowls to another country? Yeah, so I realized. I had another challenge in front of me and that made me very excited. So I built this footed bowl product without really thinking about a brand. And I didn't think about a company name and that's why it ended up being called Dylan Kendall, which everybody wants to know. (laughs) I just didn't think there was anything. This was my bridge to something else. It wasn't supposed to be my destination and it became the destination. So, you know, within nine months I, gotten on a plane, traveled to China, was looking at factories, you know, networking, which is what we do, um, building a support community and shipping bowls to Australia (laughs) with feet on them. And then not long after the mug with feet happened, which ended up becoming an even more popular product because of storage. And at that point, we just were, I was a full on, you know, into raising money, into handling retailers teaching myself all the nuts and bolts of sales and, and voila, we had a, (laughs) and were you, were you able to fulfill that? Cause sometimes like, you know, to get suddenly to go from, like you say, almost virtually nothing or being an, you know, home-based business to suddenly having $80,000 worth of product to get to customers. Were you able to fulfill that? And in the time scale that they were happy with, because I know sometimes with some entrepreneurs, they, they get so successful and they literally can't fulfill the orders. So how did that kind of play out? Number one, if you have a product that somebody wants, they will wait. That is the number one thing I've learned is that you're in the driver's seat. It's like the world is content is king. We had a highly differentiated product. I mean, if I were selling a t-shirt and I was competing with thousands of other t-shirt vendors and I couldn't make a deadline, who's to say whether that purchase order would have been annulled, but I had a foot on, I had a mug with feet and everybody wanted it. So, and And that actually ended up being what happened to the whole company. We went international and before I knew we were distributing around the world or selling to a third party, doing some distribution ourselves around the world, everybody wanted this footed mug. It was weird. It was like, it tapped into something, this inner child in all of us that just made you smile. And so I found that, no, we did not meet our deadlines in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I had to <laughs> manufacture in China. That's like not an easy thing to do. It's not like all, back then there wasn't even Alibaba, although again, we were making our own product. So it wasn't even like we were purchasing off Alibaba. Um, so I had to go work with factories and be there when the mugs looked like a 1970s dance party explosion gone wrong because everyone was cleaning up and down and they got fired too quickly and none of them could stay on their feet. Uh, So I had to definitely put some time into sort of what we call R&D in the space to find the right factories, get the right stoneware body. And no, we missed all our deadlines. But we had a product that people really wanted. People thought, retailers thought it's a new product. There's nothing like it in the market. It'll turn fast. And it did. So we were a little lucky. I don't know that anybody coming to market with a product would be able to be as reckless with deadlines as I was, but I was. To yeah. answer your 
And it's interesting that no one or that someone else didn't come come in, like one of the big players didn't kind of say, oh, that looks popular, let's bring out our own and kind of beat you to it. But obviously they, they didn't. I suppose that's a kind of a risk nowadays. But um, no, that's great. I love that story. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the funding and the setting up of the company, because I know you said to me uh, in an email, you've had a very interesting journey in regards to, to funding it. As you said, you've literally done it, started the company from scratch. Um, you had five Kickstarter campaigns, three SBA loans, um, and some purchase order finance. So can you tell us a little bit about those different funding models, why you chose them at various particular times, and just talk a little bit about the benefits and the disadvantages of each one? Well, I think the overall takeaway on this topic is don't don't do what I did. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how or why I thought. I had very, you know, I always tell people on a much more serious note, I had a very easy time raising money for my nonprofit, for my charity. I was in a million within three years. And for an agency that didn't actually seem that plug and play at the beginning. Women, I think, historically have difficulties fundraising, but in the nonprofit space, it's kind of accepted that you can raise for children, right? Women can raise money for people in need. That's our sweet space. So now we move into the private sector and boy, is it entirely different. And I did not know this because bold I am. I did not realize how bad it would be. As we all know the stats less than, and I think this came out as recently as 2017 in PitchBook, less than 3% of all raises are going to women in the venture space. That's 97% of all financing capital, 97%. Yeah, it's horrifying. And of course now women who make it are beginning to come back and do their bit to support, incubate, accelerate other female led ventures, but it is very difficult. I, again, I did get lucky because I could finance some POs. So we had some fast traction that allowed me to leverage. I mean, the interest rates are really high and you have to find, you know, you're, you can only finance POs with obviously a credible um, retailer, one who's in Duns and Bradstreet. So not everything can be purchase order financed, but, that aided um, early on. Kickstarter at that time was still very new. So I think all told, maybe I raised 40K throughout a few distributed different campaigns. Now were they, they for different products, um, Dylan? Yeah, so did for you different like, products. Oh, like okay. one was 20, one was 10, one was five, I think. Oh, okay. Nowadays, again, even Kickstarter is pay to play. Sorry, Kickstarter, if you're listening, but you must know that. It's no longer democratic. The campaigns that go on Kickstarter that really do well are the ones that have full teams behind them. They have you know, publicists. They've got ads people. I looked at doing one recently for a new product, we did a test run. Like I think we dumped 5K into ads. It didn't perform well on Facebook, and we pulled the campaign. That's wow. 5,000 I could have put into product, but wow. we needed so much more for the product that when we, again, I'm also a huge fan of testing your market, knowing your market, and so we we didn't run with it. It's again things that happened to me as history ends up wrapping around enterprises through the decades. Steve Jobs could have only been Steve Jobs when he was. I had a couple, I think, of, I had some breaks that were advantageous. Consequently, I think I would have had other breaks if my company launched in 2018. Um, You know, back then, the direct-to-customer market wasn't as robust as it is now online. Companies can forego retail altogether now and just do entirely direct-to-customer online. Right. Back then, it was still, what big box stores are you in, right? People really wanted to quantify against Target or Kroger's. Now you can build an entire company online and never touch a Target or a Walmart, right? Yeah. So, you know, every decade or every sort of period of time brings different things to entrepreneurs. And at that time, like I said, Kickstarter for me was available because we were a novel product. So it was simply organic growth. Uh, we were also a very cheap product, which is a problem now I'm learning on Kickstarter. We, I think, you know, our average was, I think a bull at that point was like, 20 bucks, 15, right? So, you know, again, some of Kickstarter tends to favor the higher priced items, not exclusively. I don't want to down, you know, plenty of people have campaigns that are contradictory to what I'm saying, but in general sweeps. Um, But yes, we did. I did a number of Kickstarter campaigns. Um, Let's see. We did three SBA microloans. We were able to take advantage of a women and minorities program that actually came out of Kiva 
but now Kiva's removed from it. But at the time, Kiva was looking at doing microfinancing in the U.S. as well. Oh, right. Kiva does microloans internationally. They were the trendsetter in the microloan movement. Uh, so they had an initiative with, I think, the SBA or certainly our local version of it, the, um, the EDC. So we did some microfinancing through them, taking advantage of that, uh, and then some family and friends, but never a lot. Yeah, I finally did. I mean, I think like thirty thousand here, or forty thousand there, and then I I finally did a big round at the end of last year for a quarter million, which closed. And does that mean you've got investors now, or that own some equity, uh, or have you kept a hundred percent of your equity? No, I have no, I have nothing left. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, <laughs> you can't self finance. You will not own much of your company when it comes down to it. So I don't own a lot of my company. You know, thankfully there are so many clever, crafty. I'm not saying you should just deceive your investors, but there's a, l- a lot of, you know, you have a good attorney working with you and there are clever ways to structure everything, but more or less, I mean, I barely own the uh, 1% majority of my companies. Like right. Wow. Wow. And did you choose your investors carefully to make sure that they stay within your ethics? Was that how? Um... That's a great question. Who has that luxury, especially if you're a female? I'm so grateful to get this money. They could have been like burning down rainforests and I would have still taken the money, to be frank. Right, right. And Fair enough. I, I appreciate your honesty. And I really, it's actually really refreshing, you know, to, to have someone come on and not just talk about the good sides of the business, but also to say, hey, you know, look, these are the struggles. They're real. And this is what we did. So I really just want to acknowledge you for sharing this because I think it's really, really helpful for, for other people. Well, I figure if, you know, you want to learn, because you want to do this yourself and I do want to empower other women and painting a realistic picture I have a real issue with Genesis stories and you know what like after this probably you'll read my Genesis story someplace and you'll be like wow what an amazing tale right because they leave out all the bad stuff you know every like entrepreneur who started their company with two thousand dollars is lying to you because they have rent or they have to pay a mortgage, right? Or they have utility bills. So what they mean to say is they put $2,000 into the creation of some product and then everything else was magically supported by other money, right? Right, They always like to kind of (laughs) disrupt that Genesis concept. And there are a lot of them because there are great inspirational stories, you know, all the time. And I never want to downplay the amount of hustling that goes on because no matter how much you start with, it's never really enough unless you're like an honest company with Jessica Alba who put like almost a million to get our company off the ground. Most of us are struggling with undercapitalization out of the gate. But this idea that you can do it with $2,000 is kind of not true unless you are living with your parents or, you know, you've got, that's why I always emphasize I had my own nut to carry every month. There was no husband who was like, good for you, honey, right? Like, what a great company. <laughs> Take your time, right? It'll happen. I mean, I didn't have that. I had deadlines looming in the form of a landlord every single month who insisted on getting paid his rent check, right? right. He was interested in me asking for just a little bit more time. So you have to um, really know that when you're going into starting a company. It's a long game. It's three to five years statistically for a company to have any traction. And uh, I was not an exception to that. And then in the meantime, you have to think, how am I going to pay my life? Am I, you know, young? Am I a young entrepreneur? So I have a bunch of roommates or I'm comfortable driving Uber. And I wasn't any longer. That was my first company, you know, my charity, Hollywood Arts. By the time I got to this company, I was, I had a grandson I had a family like I had to figure this out so yeah something I want to be very open about brilliant again, yeah do but it's work. I'm sorry to cut you off. Go no, ahead. no, that's all right. Because I just on that. And then before we go into talking about where the business is now, I mentioned you also mentioned as well that you you started a, a new plant-based plastic um, mm-hmm. but that was cut off at the knees by a poor investment and some bad containers and you had basically had to shut the whole business down. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from it and what you would have done differently? Um, what I would have done differently, I always like take your last one and work backwards. I hope I don't forget things as, as that's my answering question strategy. <laughs> I don't know what I would have learned from it. I think my, uh, I mean, I think your whole process of running a company as should be your whole process of life. Every mistake is an opportunity to, to, to learn again from something and to realize that failure, if you're not, you have to be failing in your company. There's no way. I mean, you have to learn. No one's 
just kind of shoots out of the womb with this ready-made package. And so I, I don't know what I learned from this one specifically. I think it really caused me more to kind of look back at the whole company's run and look at the company. And I know there are some big company changes that had happened as a result of this. Specifically in terms of this product, I, I did fall in love with a plant-based material made out of bamboo. Uh, at the time, it wasn't in the U.S. This was about three years ago. You can now find them kind of on Amazon. A lot of the factories are selling their own stuff directly to the customer on Amazon. Again, it's a changed world. But three years ago, I discovered it on one of my trips overseas. Really liked it. Spent a lot of time in R&D because I didn't want to bring to market a product that looked eco. I would known from my own family. And let me tell you, my kiddo, my grandkiddo is indoctrinated in veganism and eco. Like there is, we see a plastic bottle, he will run down the street to grab that plastic bottle and bring it back. <laughs> like, every like moment of his little tiny brain is thinking, you know, how do we save animals and planet? But I would bring in the eco dishes as I was going through R&D and I was in the samples and they looked like cardboard and he couldn't eat on them. So here's uh. a no is better than any child on the planet why I'm doing this. And yet he's like, no, can I just have a ceramic? <laughs> nice. Like, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> once again, going back to your customer, you realize, I realize that my customer for an eco, you know, for this great plastic product for dogs or for pets, for, for I would say for furry and for human children, isn't the parent. It's the child. We can buy all the eco stuff we want, but if our child isn't atta- attracted to it, they're not going to use it and it's just sitting in your cupboard, right? Yeah. So I spent, why I spent so long on the product was because I really needed it to not look eco for it to be successful. And if you look at the products now, I think they're still on my website, you'll see that they have a, they're really bright and colorful. They've got a shiny resin on them, which we do with plant. And they don't look, I mean, they're surprising to many. In fact, it's almost been our problem is that they... They almost don't look enough eco that people don't believe they're made from plants. Oh. <laughs> a whole educational campaign around that. And so that's what took so long to get the product to market was I, I needed to really, I, I took a long time playing with the colors. It was really important that my art director was happy that we put a product in the market that we were really proud of. So that is actually a great product. It's still a great product. It's kind of on stand standstill at the moment because of a, a larger problem we had. And that happened when you work with factories in China. Every person will tell you this, whether you're buying, using a third-party vendor like an Alibaba to handle most of the, the sort of product search quality for you. You open up your box and you're like, oh my God, there are like thousands of hairbrushes and they have no bristles right? That's, that's what happened. So that's what happened to us. We brought over two containers, 20,000 units, and they were all defective. Wow. So oh that goodness. more or less cut the company off at its knees. Back. Wow. We've since re-strategized. But, so we forfeited Amazon orders. We forfeited Bed Bath & Beyond orders. We had a, a bunch of retailers who were attached to those containers, and I wouldn't sell them, you know, the bad product. So sure. yeah, it was huge hit for us. We lost almost $50,000 and a whole bunch of uh, income that was projected against the orders. Wow. So what did you do? You did you close the business down for a while and now you've restructured. So talk a little bit about what you did and and what you're doing now. um, I went into therapy, which is seriously the most important thing I could say for any entrepreneur, especially if you're a solopreneur. Yeah. It is really tough. So I started seeing a therapist. (laughs) I questioned every decision I'd ever made almost as an entire like person, right? I thought I had somehow responsible for these bad containers and I was ultimately, but I needed to figure out why. So um, I then cried a lot. I mean, for a month, right? I, I cried a lot, um, tried to figure out how to solve the problem. And again, I'm working as a solopreneur. I think yeah. that's one of my biggest lessons as well. I will never do another company as a solopreneur. Right, There's really. There's real value in partnership because you're operating, I'm operating in a state of high distress. I have an investor who's not happy. I've got, wow, retailers really not happy. <laughs> like, when you've got when you're locking into retail shelving, that's income that that retailer is depending on right. performance. And now you're saying you can't fill that order. So I've got really angry retailers who will never do business with me again at the time. I've got you know a really upset investor. I've got a team of people who depended on me for their salaries. 
And I'm doing this on my own. And it was hard, to be honest. And so um, it, you know, it took a while. We, we, we pulled the team back together. We wrote a whole bunch of plans that nobody supported. But, you know, that's what you do, right? We kept trying to reposition, come up with new strategies. Um, and then we, we never closed. We haven't closed. We created a couple of deals which are kind of lengthy with a distributor here in L.A., that ended up holding us over for a while, although it didn't become our permanent sort of lifeboat. And now we have a new distributor. So as of like this phone call, we're in conversations with another distributor who will be buying the brand, the products from our factories directly, we get royalties. So it's a really common strategy. I, I probably should have looked at these deals a year ago, but did not. Back then, I thought I really needed to own my company. Again, you live and you learn, like I said, from everything. Yeah. So in a way, the door shut, but it opened up another door. I'm really, really happy with the distributor model. I mean, I'm so happy. I'm over the moon happy. Oh, I love so, that. Because a lot of companies don't because they hold margins, margins, you know, when you've got distributors yeah. and retailers, it squeezes the the, the maker. Um, but I love that you, you kind of turn that on its head. And I know you said something about you sell FOB to China. For those who don't know the lingo, what does that mean? Free on board. It just means that your distributor is buying from your manufacturer directly. So you're removed from all liability. Oh, okay, the right. factory gives a price for the cost of the good, we then inflate small, you know, like you were saying, tiny 10, 20% on top of that, which is pennies when you were a low, we're a mass produced item, we're a low cost item. So it's pennies, right? Yeah. And then the uh, distributor pays that price. I pay the factory and then we don't, we don't do anything again. Although in this last iteration, the distributor and I will probably work together pretty closely. Uh, and in any case, because we have some strong brand assets that we want to make sure he gets, uh, he has available to him. So he'll, I, he's not going to be completely working in the dark without me. But I won't be assuming any liability for the product. I won't be doing any logistics. Wow. Never use packing tape again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I really like that you've shared this completely different yeah. model. Well, eight years. One that, yeah, people often shy away from, particularly in the beginning. So I love that. I really appreciate you sharing your journey. This is so helpful. And at the moment, I believe as well, because you freed up some of your time, um, you're also now um, helping other vegan business owners and, and other women entrepreneurs in, in your social impact coaching. Well, the nice thing, so also I think there's a quality that tends to be pretty typical in entrepreneurs, and that is we really like to solve problems. And this company, my problem, I solved my problems. And some of them were personal, like, how the hell do you manufacture a product in China, right? That was a challenge for me. And I solved it. And it was, you know, it was great. I mean, now it's exhausting going to China, but back then it was great. And then, you know, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I need other thinking, better thinking, different thinking, my, and I need to do something else. And so that's where you step in. And if you're successful, you sell your company or you do what I'm doing and you kind of partner with a new ally. And I really do think building companies with partnerships is so underrated. And I really do wish I'd looked into doing it years ago. I think uh, there's so much value in letting other people do what they do really well. And distributors move product really well. And they yeah. do it and big retailers count on them because they know they're not going to have empty shelves. They can move fast nice. to fix problems where when you're small, you don't have that. It's, you know, a small problem becomes a tidal wave or I guess a drop becomes a tidal wave. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So now I, I'm so happy that I get to do something else. And I have all these projects like every entrepreneur does, you know, and I get very excited hearing about what other entrepreneurs are doing. So, and people know that weakness of mine and they take advantage of it. So I also have like friends <laughs> who are suddenly calling me like, hey, I'm going to start this electronic blah, blah, blah. Can you, and I'm like, I'd love to, you know, for no cost because we're friends. So it does, it kind of, you know, juices me up. I really like it. So this is good. I'm back in a place where I, I can move away from sort of, we, my company's an autopilot. We have factories designated. We have you know, collateral or all that built. And I get to do something new. And I, I really am excited about working with 
you know, when and if they come through my path, other vegans, other people who are interested in that social enterprise space where they, we know consumerism isn't going, I cannot change shopping behavior, but I can offer a better alternative. I love those people. Mm -hmm. So this is exciting to me because I get to uh, collaborate with, advise uh, people who also understand that you can use the market. The market is a really powerful tool to create systemic change. Yeah, for sure. How do you market your products at the moment? Because you've still got your your website and I see your products are on your website. So are you still marketing and promoting them, say through social media or PR or or anything like that? Or is that all handled for you? Uh, It's not any longer. We don't really do much of anything any longer. Again, the products went viral. So, I mean, every day I get emails from people who bought them seven years ago and they want to buy them anew or I don't know, people just find me, you know, it was early on. We were talking with, I can't remember the name of the company. They do monetization of Instagram postings. So if you're West Elm and someone tags my West Elm, there's a company that's going to come in, grab that tag, contact the poster, send them a legal contract, just, you know, a couple of paragraphs about reusing that photo, jamming it or sort of not jamming it, it's not a terrible, sort of propelling it all the way back up to the West Elm site, attach a tag to it, and then use that as an advertising tool for West Elm, right? As an example. Right. So we were talking to them, again, this is, you know, five years ago. Now there's thousands of companies doing this, maybe, maybe not a thousand, but a number. When back then there were only a few that were uh, trend setting in that space. And she went over to her Instagram feed. And, you know, at that time, I think I had like 250 photos of customers sharing my mugs, right? And her jaw dropped. She said, we've never seen a small business because the photos, like, look, you're a bored human being, and you've got a mug with feet, <laughs> that mug is going to show up on Instagram, right? <laughs> it's a highly ph- photographable product. And so we were very lucky. When I said we went viral, we really did. And we rode that way for a long time. Uh, and we're still kind of riding it now. We, we don't really use formal public, you know, publicists or uh, I don't. Now, since I'm kind of moving around in my space, I haven't kind of really stuck a flagpole into a marketing plan. Um, and so, yeah, it still just kind of all happens through the magic of people want to photograph and share my product. Wow. It's an anomaly. I get it. It's an anomaly. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So you're looking at maybe, Brian, with, you, with your social impact coaching, I know you said you've been kind of helping friends for free at the moment. Do you see that as a, an additional income stream going forward? I don't know. Again, I love it. But I, I also really like getting in deep. And the thing with consulting is you leave, right? Like I had a client over today and I, she's great. She's a paid client on the side. Not everyone I do for free. Right. And <laughs> I had the opportunity to like grow. I, I'm growing her in China because China is such a huge market. You know, it's really just, it's in the wellness space and they're just really rising rapidly. Out yeah. Of, right. So. We, we do a session that lasts a couple of hours and then she leaves and I feel very deflated. I was like, no, but there's more. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a 24-hour-a-day worker, right? Like my energy levels are so high that I'm like, I have that, again, what entrepreneurs have, that kind of hustle where there's always something to do. And so she leaves because the session was only supposed to be like three hours and we, we created a plan and of action. And she leaves and then I spend the next hour like just researching everything I can find out about the specific demographic in China, right? And I send her like a flurry of emails, which she hasn't even answered because of course she's like got to do her own work elsewhere, right? But I'm so excitable. So I got very sad. I was like, oh yeah, right, this project's over. Huh, you know? <laughs> Where do you see yourself going then? What's your kind of long-term vision for yourself? So I'd like to get into something, you know, I'd like to have the opportunity to get in deep with another social enterprise. Right. And because again, my company is not dying. It's just moving into another phase. Sure. So I'd like to go into another social enterprise and do the same thing, really help them be part of a team, help them, you know, change the world in whatever their impact space is, eco, vegan, like I said, two things that are really important to me. Um, and and have a team again and and uh, yeah, do it and, and make it happen. And it's a, 
it's just a thrill, you know, it's a 18 hour day and I really enjoy that. So oh. I'm kind of keeping my ears to the ground about those types of opportunities. Well, me. well, if there's anybody on the call, you, you can yeah. hear it here. We can <laughs> get in touch with Dylan. Yeah. Um, so we'll put links obviously to your, to your website and everything on the, the show notes page. Um, but look, Dylan, this has been such a valuable call. Like I said earlier, I really appreciate you being upfront about your, your whole business journey and, you know, uh, and how it happened. Cause you know, a lot of people like we, you talked about earlier, they want to do the Genesis story or they just want to share the good parts. And I think this has been so valuable. I know I've learned uh, a lot myself. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. It's fun. I mean, I wish that I, I had heard people, I just, it will not dissuade you. If you have entrepreneurialism in your blood, it is just your life's journey. So nothing I'm saying will dissuade. It, would, it wouldn't dissuade me. But I hope that it just opens up people's eyes to the reality and the planning required to keep your support structure intact. The number one challenge, I mean, I burned out on Hollywood arts because it was a very despairing content, right? It was a despairing phenomenon of working with the homeless and being on the streets. Yeah. But I also burned out because I was, we had boards of directors in both, but nobody is the same as like your, right? If you can... I burned out just heavy lifting by myself all the time. My, my takeaway is if you're for your audience, if this is what you really want to do and you have to do it, then do it. But just hear that you will hit challenges and be prepared in advance so they don't cut you off the knees. Have a plan B. I never had a plan B and it caused a lot of like uh, turmoil. I, there were no plan Bs. By the time I figured out my plan B, I had lost six months of work. Not because I was called up in a corner bawling, but because I didn't move quickly enough because I didn't. So that's the, I, I wish more people were candid about that. Unless you're a trust fund kid, unless you've left Wharton with like a pocket full of business cards of people who are just ready to fund you, it's a climb. And, and just know that so you're prepared for it. And then you're great. Again, if you love what you do so much, then whatever you do to bring in money doesn't matter, right? I've met entrepreneurs who are driving Uber. I've met entrepreneurs like, who are selling makeup at the counter of Sephora, which they hate, but it doesn't matter because outside of those hours, they're being driven by their passion. Sure. So yes. I think that's the lesson is that you have to really know that you're going to make mistakes. You, you will. You have to. But as much as you can hear people like myself, and I am far more successful than many, how you hear about their failures know, lets you know that they're going to be coming and you should be prepared for them. And, and they don't mean the end of the world. They just mean you need to back up and start again. Yeah, brilliant. That's wonderful advice. Thank you again, Dylan. It's been great having you on the show. My pleasure. Like I said, really happy. Thank you for making this happen. So that was Dylan Kendall from Dylan Kendall Home. You can find out more at dylankendall.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 104. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Vegan entrepreneurs in the UK have the opportunity to pitch their brand to a team of judges to raise funding in the Pitch and Plant competition on 14th of July, that's 2018 if you're listening in the future. The contest, which takes its inspiration from the popular BBC TV show Dragon's Den, was piloted last year at Vivolution, an events and media startup in London founded by Damien Clarkson and Judy Nadal, in partnership with Bran Investments. This year, Bran Investments has increased its stake from just £1,500 to £100,000 due to strong investor demand for plant-based businesses, according to Head of Partnerships, Jonathan Keeling. Applications are open from now until the 2nd of July, and six finalists will be chosen to pitch their products in front of a live audience in London at the competition. Applicants must be UK-based companies looking to complete a fundraising round of at least £150,000 within the next six months. The £100,000 will either be awarded to one brand or be split among several. 
In order to receive the equity investment from Bran, winners will have to successfully complete the rest of their fundraising round on equity crowdfunding platform Crowdcube. So this is a fantastic opportunity and it'll be interesting to see if this model takes off in other countries. You can read more about this in my Forbes article, which I'll put a link to on the show notes page. Smarties co-president Liz D has launched her Vegan Lady Boss initiative globally. She came up with the idea to empower vegan women to advance in business and as entrepreneurs by creating a network run by locals who get together and support each other personally and professionally. What started out with six friends in Dee's New York City apartment quickly grew and the New York meetings now attract 60 to 80 women from all walks of life, including high-profile influencers such as business journalist and TV commentator Susie Welsh and best-selling author Victoria Moran. Because queries came pouring in from all over the US and even internationally, Dee realised that she'd kick-started a movement. So she hired a community director, Adriana Suarez, from vegan eatery group Champs Empire, and put together a starter kit for organisers to start their own groups. The network currently has 11 chapters, including Colorado Springs, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Halifax in Canada. Again, I wrote about this in depth for my Forbes column, which includes several uplifting case studies of how vegan women have helped each other professionally as a result of being part of the network. So do have a read of that. I'll put a link to it on the show notes page and perhaps either attend or even start your own vegan lady boss chapter. I really love this. It just goes to show what we can do when we lift each other up. And it's fantastic to see women in particular supporting each other like this. Finally, the city of Asheville in North Carolina is running a vegan challenge week, which started on the 4th of June and runs to the 10th of June, reports Plant Based News. The official Vegan Challenge Week coincides with the Asheville Vegan Fest, which started on the 8th of June and goes to the 10th of June, and has been endorsed by Mayor Esther Mannheimer. The event is a collaboration between the city, Brother Wolf Animal Rescue, and regional hospital Mission Health. The city of Asheville has even released an official proclamation signed by Mannheimer, providing information on official events along with facts and figures around the impacts of our food choices on the well-being of animals, human health, the environment, wildlife extinction and climate change. The city is encouraging both individuals and businesses and institutions to take part in the challenge. What a fantastic idea and something that you as a vegan business owner could well look to do in your own city. It can help to raise the profile of your brand and attract more customers to your business, as well as opening people's minds to veganism. It's amazing what powerful collaborations can achieve and this kind of thing is a win for everyone involved. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more free resources as well as details of how we can work together to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. And I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.